This is a Socialist News and Views special interview. I'm Nick Schillingford coming to you from the Urban Cabin Studios in South Minneapolis with this special interview. Let's go straight to the interview. So on Socialist News and Views, we let folks introduce themselves. You want to just tell us who you are? Sure. My name is Aaron Amaral. I'm a I'm a based in New, based in New York City. I'm a member of the Tempest Collective. My main political work these days is as uh, the editorial manager of the Tempest website. Um, I have a long history on the left in the U.S. and internationally. I'm active in the nascent Ukraine Solidarity Network, U.S., which is tied into a Ukraine Solidarity Network, small n, internationally. And yeah, I work as a labor lawyer here in here in New York City. Yeah, and I, I first saw you in a debate uh, on December fourth uh, that was sponsored by Marxists organizing for revolutionary eco socialism, more and a number of other organizations in different countries. The debate was titled "International Roundtable Debate: uh, The War in Ukraine: How Should Socialists Respond?" And you know, and I was glad to see the debate. Uh, something I'd been looking for for a while. I've watched it a few times now. And I'll be honest, I was still a little unclear at the by the end of the debate exactly what the final implications of the different positions were for the movements and activists operating in the ground, you know, in different parts of the world. So, uh, you know, and as many highlighted in that debate, you know, it's a complicated uh, issue uh, for a lot of folks. There's a lot of discussion going on. Can you just quickly highlight what your understanding of the different opinions in that debate uh, were and then just, you know, lay out your position? How should socialists relate and respond to this war in Ukraine? Let me absolutely. Let me re- let me. Start and you can frame it, and you can frame it differently if that uh, makes more sense to you. Absolutely. No, the framing is fine. I want to start. I want to start with the broad question first, which sure. is you know my position and the question of the of the Russian invasion and how we respond. And then I'll say a couple things about the debate, um, mainly because I think the debate narrowed the question in a particular way, which you know raised important raised an important question, but also because of the narrowing. Um, meant that certain other questions about what the, about the movement and what the movement should be doing were largely left unanswered. Sure. So let me start with the question of the of the war and how socialists should respond. What we need to rec- there's a bunch of things that are really important to recognize here, but basically, you know, the the proximate cause of 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 this crisis was the Russian invasion of of Ukraine, and you had a Russian army. Um, you know, following off of successive uh, interventions going back to at least 2014, um, you know, in, invade the country from from all sides, from south, north, and east. Um, you know, and as a result, you know, caused the deaths of thousands of thousands of its own people. Uh, you know, caused the deaths of thousands of Ukrainians, and in the meantime, you know, has caused the mass destruction of of. Uh, in the you know tens of billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars of Ukraine. So we're talking about you know, and in addition, the millions and millions of refugees. The you know the th- these numbers um, and the implications can seem very abstract, but I think it's really important for us to think about what it means for a, a sovereign nation to be invaded by another, 
and what then the implications are and what the obligations are for those of us outside of that of that nation, especially given the historical context of uh, of of Ukraine. It's important to understand, and I think the sort of the the key to the debate is how do we understand as Marxists, as socialists, the character of of this war, the character of 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 uh, you know to what we're responding, and it's always the case under capitalism in the context of relations between nation states. It's always the case that the dynamics of imperialism are at play, and specifically in a context in which what had been a kind of unipolar world dominated by U.S. imperialism in the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union in the early 1990s, and one that the U.S. empire and the Bush administration and the Pentagon sought to solidify in the early 2000s with the invasion of Iraq and the war in Afghanistan and throughout the Southwest Asia, which then failed, what we've seen right. is the rise of a kind of new moment, which is the rise of a kind of multipolar imperial world, where it's no longer just the United States that's singularly dominant everywhere. The U.S. remains the dominant uh, nation state, but they're real regional competitors, including most importantly China, but in this case Russia. Any dynamic and all the dynamics between nation states reflect in some way or another those dynamics between imperialism. We cannot reduce, however, all of these all of these uh, relations between nation states to just that. In this context, where you specifically have the kind of a, a kind of an emergent imperial power, Russia, invading and trying to fully take over Ukraine, and by the language of uh, you know, if you look at the speech of Putin in February, basically trying to destroy Ukraine as a nation, trying to deny Ukraine status and its national sovereignty and its national rights, for which there's a long and sordid history going back, you know, at least to the late 18th century of Russia, of Russia trying to do exactly that, the context of the Ukrainian nation. We need to understand that what, that, that this is not just about imperialism, this is about the attempt to, this is about national self-determination and an attempt to destroy U the Ukraine as a sovereign nation. And so in the first instance, when Russia invades, we need to understand that the, this, is a, this is a war of, na of, the, of national self-determination and there's basic democratic rights at issue. And if this isn't clear just from the fact of seeing a foreign army invade and murder and destroy a sovereign nation, then if you start looking at the history and understanding the history, that becomes very clear. So the starting point for socialists has to be not just, not just a, pass, a passing recognition of the Ukrainians' right to defend themselves and the Ukrainians' legitimate fight for national self-determination, but understanding that there's a his, history here that has to be um, understood and which should place us firmly on the side is a general matter of, of, of wanting to see Ukrainians um, succeed to, you know, victoriously uh, kick out the Russian invaders. So then the question is, well, what does that mean concretely for the left? And here, 
is where I think the debate that you referenced was way too narrow. Sure. Because, to be honest, I was initially sold on this is a debate about how should socialists respond to the invasion. When I got there, the debate was framed rather, what do socialists say about the right to get arms? Right. The Ukrainians' right to get arms from the West. That's a much narrower issue. Right. And by framing it in that narrower way, you're, you know, you narrow the, the sort of strategic questions that were confronted. Now, my position is, and, you know, this is a, very obviously contested, but that we, do, we cannot and should not, in a context in which, you know, millions of people in Ukraine, in a fight for the, for na- for the right for national sovereignty, are demanding, you know, arms. Right. And the only way, the only way in which they're going to be able to succeed is through an armed struggle because they're facing an armed invader. We cannot, on the left, stand in opposition to their right to get arms. Does that mean that we go and cheerlead the Pentagon? Does that mean we're uncritical of NATO? Does that mean we cease all our criticisms um, of, of U.S. imperialism? Or, 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 you know, Western imperialism? Absolutely not. But it does mean that we need to foreground the question of the right of national self-determination, which means many things, but it also means that we're not going to stand in the way of the Ukrainians' right to armed self-defense. Yeah, and that, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, that, that goes uh, pretty well into the, um, the, the next thing I wanted to touch on. I know something that came up at least twice during that uh, debate uh, was uh, Trotsky's Learn to Think uh, from 1938. I don't, I don't know if you brought it up both times, but I know it was mentioned a, a handful of times. Can you just briefly discuss that document and how you believe that relates to the, to the situation that we see in Ukraine today? I think, I think there's a relation to what you're saying here. Yeah, I didn't actually, I didn't, I wasn't the first one necessarily to raise it. I think it's an incredibly important document and I would encourage people, especially, you know, comrades who are, you know, you know, thinking about the socialist history, the, the Marxist history on these issues, right? to go back and look at these discussions and debates, read, you know, read Marx and Engels, read Trotsky and Lenin, mm-hmm. um, read, read Luxembourg, with whom there are important debates, but also specifically read about Ukraine, mm-hmm. because there's a really fascinating and important history about, about Ukraine and, 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 the, and, the, and the Marxist tradition on Ukraine. What's important about that 1938 essay is that like, and I gave a potted history of kind of the evolution of imperialism from, you know, the Cold War to the, you know, the victory of the U.S. and the unipolar world to now we're entering a new period mm-hmm. of what, what we call sort of asymmetric, a multipolar asymmetric uh, imperial conflict, inter-imperial conflicts. Mm-hmm. In 1938, and similarly, there's a very... In intense and complex inter-imperial struggle starting to arise. Now, I'm not going to discuss the whole history leading into the Second World War, but you, people who know, I mean, you know, anybody even with a passing knowledge of that, of that history knows that it's incredibly complex. Mm-hmm. You have the U.S. and the West, you have a declining uh, British Empire, you have the Nazi Empire, you know, on the ascendancy, you have the Soviet Union, you have, you know, the emergent national liberation movements throughout mm-hmm. Africa and Asia, and most, and most importantly, China um, in the mix. 
So the question that Trotsky is addressing is, you know, you know, in a, very, in a very short essay, is how do we think about the relationship between um, our own imperialisms and the questions of uh, and the and, and the issues of national self determination and national liberation when they arise? Because we've all been trained rightly in our own countries to be suspicious and to organize against. Um, you know, our own imperialism, our own imperialist state, mm-hmm. and our own capitalist states. But is that sufficient to answer all of the questions? And Trotsky definitively says no, in a way that very much foreshadows what, we've, what we're witnessing today. So, for example, Trotsky uses the, uses the example of... Um, Algeria. Algeria, right. And he says, what, would, what do we say if you have a, a, an uprising, a legitimate anti-colonial uprising in Algeria against you know, the French state, which at that stage remained a kind of a quote-unquote democratic state and an ally of the West against, against fascism. What do we say where, uh, where these folks and the anti-colonial uprising in Algeria are getting arms from, for example, fascist Italy, which is not, was not, if you know anything about that history, would not at all be uh, a crazy hypothetical. Hmm. What do we say about that? Do we say that, you know, the, the, the colonial uprising in, in, in Algeria should refuse uh, the arms because they come from fascist Italy, a clear opponent of you know of basic democratic rights. Do we stand against the colonial uprising because you know we see the upcoming fight against fascism and it's too important that the French state be defended? Absolutely not. Or do we say you know that the only position? Or do we say as 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 revolutionaries in Italy that? Our only job is to oppose the Italian state giving arms to uh, Algeria. And Trotsky says, absolutely not. And he calls this ultra-left fa- uh, phrase-mongering. You know, right. that the, you know, the idea that this, the single question of opposing your own imperialism at any given time is going to answer all, this, all the same, uh, all, this, all the questions all the time, is really a, a kind of basic, you know, ultra-left uh, error. And so, you know, this is, this is why, um, you know, this is, and I'm, I'm sure, this is why this piece is so important. Because, you know, he says, we're not asking that the Italian workers moderate their struggle against the fascist regime. And, you know, and if fascism is rendering aid to the Algerians only in order to weaken its enemy, France, so be it. But we're going to we're going to use those, you know, in this context, we're going to stand with the anti-colonial uprising and use those arms as best we can for our own purposes. So at all times, the starting point for Trotsky, and I think the proper starting point for all socialists should be, how do we strategically strengthen the fight, the fight against imperialism by building solidaristic ties to the anti-imperialist struggle everywhere. 
and anywhere. If we are in this context, in the Ukraine context, if we are either actively or passively opposing the rights of, of Ukrainians to, to militarily defend themselves, that essentially we're doing the opposite of the solidaristic thing. We're standing in opposition to international solidarity. Now, again, I'm not saying that the only thing, the only job of the left is to cheerlead arms. The only job of the left is to lobby the Pentagon. Absolutely not. What I'm saying is we cannot, on the question of arms, stand in the way of, of arms. At the same time, our, our main task is in every and each way to, to build solidaristic ties and to build the, the, the left and the social movements in Ukraine. So let me just give a couple concrete examples of how those things can be consonant with, uh, you know, kind of clear, more clearly consonant with building opposition to imperialism and to the capitalist states. Absolutely. So, you know, we should be actively arguing when we should be actively arguing that any debt that the Ukrainian state accrues to the Western banks, the IMF, the World Bank, etc., should be canceled. This should not be a situation, you know, uh, uh, like Naomi Klein describes. Hmm. You know, we should be actively trying to undermine, you know, the attempt by, by you know, finance capital to, to profit from this war. We should be actively fighting for against the Zelensky regime and Ukrainian capitalist attempts to take advantage of this war to further the neoliberalization of the labor market. And the lead for this has to come from the Ukrainian trade unions and the Ukrainian movement. I gave the example during that debate, but you know, there, the, the Ukrainian trade union movement asked the AFL-CIO in this country to stand in opposition and to call on the U.S. state to oppose the Zelensky uh, neoliberal labor reforms. And the AFL-CIO, because it was, it's way too close to the Biden administration, and the left in this country was not strong enough to take that campaign up, failed to do that. But that's a, that's a concrete example. There's all kinds of other concrete examples of, of ways in which we can and should be showing solid material solidarity with the people in the Ukraine. And my question to that section of the left, look, there's a section of the left that just says we're on Russia's side. We don't believe anything that's said. We think right. Russia was provoked. We're, so we stand with Russia. That, those, those people, I think, you know, are, 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 have alien politics to what I'm talking about. Hmm. What I'm addressing here are the other people who are part of that debate who say, yes, we acknowledge that this, was a, that this was an unjust war, that this was an unjust invasion by Russia. Some of them even acknowledge the national liberation, the national um, self-determination question, you know, verbally, rhetorically. My question to them is, if you're saying you can show solidarity and recognize this as a national self-determination fight, but are going to oppose uh, Western arms, what then are you doing materially, concretely, as a demonstration of your solidarity in this case? I don't, th I don't, think, th I don't think actively standing in opposition to arms is in any way consonant with 
uh, with acting solidaristic, solidaristically. But putting that aside, what else, what else, what else is it that you're doing? What are you doing for the, on the questions of the refugees? What are you doing on the questions of the, uh, you know, the defense of the rights of national minorities in, in Ukraine? Mm-hmm. What are you doing uh, to stand with the anti-war and anti-fascist forces in Russia? who are actively trying to, you know, uh, stand against Putin. I mean, this, this is the other crazy piece about this, which is, you know, the singular focus on NATO and the U.S. and the West without the, the least illusions in, you know, NATO and U.S. empire. I mean, you know, whatever. Is how, what, what, what do we understand that's going on in Russia? What do we understand that's Putin's role to be in the international world order? Right. You know, this Putin is. To, to, I don't think there should be any dispute that the Putin regime is at the forefront of the kind of of the most you know noxious authoritarian far right politics in the world. That should you know that stands uh, you know you know staunchly opposed to women's liberation, uh, LGBT liberation, stands staunchly opposed to um, uh, the rights of national minorities and basic democratic rights. And is being cheerleaded by sections of the far right. Hmm. So what does it mean then that that an ostensible left anti-war movement is essentially in 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 an alliance with uh, what's his name on Fox News? I always uh, you know There's the pro Putin voice yeah. on Fox News. Yeah. Um, you know how do we how do we what do, you know what are we saying about that? Right. Um. Anyways, th- look this this question. Unfortunately. This question that's now, this is why the Trotsky piece is so important. I don't think I did it justice. People should read it. People absolutely should read it. This this issue about the Ukraine is not just about the Ukraine. And it's going to have, because of the evolution of imperialism and the imperialist system, you know, currently and over the next decades, these questions are going to arise again and again. Right. And so how we, how we figure this out and how we align ourselves and how we think about, you know, that the enemy of my enemy is not always my friend. Right. How do we build a camp of, you know, of working class international solidarity from below without giving uh, any quarter to our own imperialism, without giving any quarter to, you know, our own capitalist state? Um, anyways, and, I, and I think yeah. that's easier said than done, right? That's... Uh... That uh, you know, yeah, that, that it, it's it, it, it's it, it, really it, hard it, to have these that to have you know sloganing is easy and having these nuanced positions is hard and even what you know even what Trotsky said in there that you know nine out of ten times you're going to be you know against your own you know ruling class and that's obviously the uh, the the initial urge and um, you know direction of most people. I want to just stick on the uh, 1938 uh, uh, document uh, Trotsky's Learn to Think Quick. I um, you know, had done some research on that. I had done some research for this interview, and the you know I had found that actually five months after Trotsky had published that document, they discovered uh, nuclear fission, which was you know laid the basis for nuclear weapons. And I've encountered a lot of activists, especially you know activists that uh, lived through the quote unquote Cold War uh, period, that are really concerned about nuclear war right now, especially with the escalation between the U.S. and Russia that's going on uh, as a result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Do you think that the existence of nuclear weapons, do you think that uh, in general, 
you know, generally uh, significantly changes the calculus uh, on war and how activists relate to it? And do you think it changes the, the calculus in this case in any way? Or uh, Well, certainly it changes the calculus in general. I mean, there's no question about it. We've, cre we've created, uh, you know, a very efficient way to destroy the planet. Mm -hmm. and, um, and we've created incentives. You know, as long as we let the rule of capital, uh, the rule of profit-taking, drive the logic of the system, mm -hmm. drive the decisions of, you know, of nation-states, then, yeah, absolutely. This is something we need to be, def you know, definitely afraid of and concerned about. And we should be working towards um, their elimination. Uh, it's very much a, a, a symbol and a symptom of, um, you know, the sort of the existential risk to humanity. In the same way that uh, that climate changes, right. in, a, in a different in a different way, similar. The good thing about there's a lot of sort of logical telescoping that goes on when you then talk about the Ukraine situation. Mm -hmm. Is it of concern that we're talking about a nuclear armed power invading Ukraine? Absolutely. Is it of concern how recklessly um, the Russians have chosen to play ball around the, uh, the nuclear uh, energy facilities um, in Zaporizhia and, and elsewhere? Um, absolutely. And, it, and, is it a, and it, in particular, is it of concern that that the Russians, in this context, you know, are actively bombing and destroying civilian infrastructure, including the, the electrical grid, uh, of which the nuclear facilities are part. Yeah, that's a great concern. But the question is, when we want to say, you know, who's the one raising the, the threat of nuclear weapons? It's, it's Putin. Putin's the one who's been using this as a tactical, you know, threat. To, to you know, in a very in a very just sort of you know particular way, to sort of further their strategic aims. And the question is this: Are we are we in a better or weaker position vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the question of nuclear holocaust if Russia if Russia wins and is success, successfully is able to uh, you know either totally or partially win? this war and take a fifth or more of the Ukrainian uh, landmass. Mm. Do we, do we think that that's going to appeasement of, of Putin in this, in this circumstance because of the threat of nuclear war is going to, is going to lessen that threat? I don't believe so. Mm. I think the opposite is true. I think if, I think what we're, the likelihood is that a Putin victory in this case is likely to see a further escalation of armed conflict throughout the region, and that's not that's not good, uh, you know, for any of us. So the starting point, I think, should always be, on some level, well, strategically, is what we're doing in the interest or not of finding a way out of the imperialist world system, which you know, which is which has given us this threat of nuclear holocaust. I mean, I don't know if that's I don't know if that's too abstract. Um, but you know, I, I just, I, you know, I think that the, I think when, when you start hearing about the threat of nuclear war, the questions we should be asking ourselves is, well, what's changed between now and yesterday right. where these threats have always existed and, and whose interest is, whose interest is being served by kind of raising that threat 
now and asking for peace now on whose terms? Hmm. You know? No, it's very fair. And I mean, you know, like, uh, that, it's a big question. I don't know, you know, I don't know necessarily have the, uh, the answer to that. And I, uh, you know, I think, I think, uh, I would say most of the imperialists have been uh, pretty reckless in the past period, not just in the past year, but, you know, in the past 10 years for sure, um, with their, uh, invasions. And they seem to be able, they seem to think they can do everything with impunity, uh, is my, uh, impression. I want to just, you know, you we kind of touched on this before, but I know there was a comrade from Zakinima in Greece, uh, that asked on that debate, um, specifically, and you, and you mentioned this with the AFL CIO piece, um, you know, asked if the left forces resisting Russia's invasion of Ukraine were also fighting against the Zelensky government or essentially subsuming themselves under it. And he went on to talk, uh, essentially to say that the only way to achieve peace was actually to overthrow that neoliberal government. What were your thoughts on that statement, and and what are your thoughts on the um, positions that the left uh, that you've seen are, are taking uh, inside of Ukraine at this at this moment? Again, this is a good example of a kind of telescoping of issues. Sure. Um, so, yeah, sh- should the left be positioning themselves as an independent force as much as they can? Absolutely. Should they be opposing um, the Zelensky government as part of that? And, and where they can in a way that's consonant with, with, you know, the context in which they're operating, which is one of, you know, incredible, incredible crisis. Right. And, uh, you know, the, the kind of threat of the invading army. Absolutely. Does that mean that, you know, everything that they do at this moment should be directed at overthrowing Zelensky? Of course not. I mean, you know, this, those are, you know, these are, this is, you know, there's a question of strategy and tactics here. Would um, you know? Do would we like it better if the if the government in the Ukraine had a different character? Absolutely. How do we how do we get there? And how do we get there in a way where the where, you know it, where the first priority remains one that can be met? And that that overarching over you know predominant priority right now is to defend Ukraine as a nation. Is to you know is to defend its right to exist because that's what's under threat right now. Um, and you know, I don't, you know, this isn't, this isn't some, um, abstract appeal to nationalism. You know, there's a very, very particular history of national oppression, both of Ukraine itself and of, uh, minority, uh, 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 nations within, um, what is today Ukraine and what, you know, what, you know, and Crimea and, you know, I mean, parts of Russia. So it's very complicated. But essentially what we're talking about and what we've been what's been true for for hundreds of years and certainly true in Ukraine since 2014 or, or you know, since the 19, early 1990s. Is that there's an attempt by a long oppressed uh, national, you know, uh, uh, nation to assert itself and, and its nation state. Mm-hmm. That's 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 the Ukraine. And so when I talk about a nation under threat. We need to understand that we're not talking about an oppressor nation. We're not talking about the defense of the U.S. Uh, or a defense of, you know, Russia. This is about, uh, you know, a long-oppressed nation and a long-oppressed national minorities who are again facing the threats of their kind of existential uh, extinction. Um, again, people should really go and read uh, read Putin's speech from February of, 20, of 2022 prior to the invasion. 
mm. um, in, in, in its entirety and what he says about the history and then go and do your own research about that history. Why is it that Lenin, that, that Lenin and the Bolsheviks are painted as the, as the enemy and the curse for having allowed the Ukrainian uh, state to exist as an independent entity within the Soviet Union? And, you know, why does, why does Putin today curse that history and curse Lenin and the Bolsheviks? Um, and which isn't to say that, the, that, by the way, this is, you know, separate. But this isn't to say that the, uh, that the Bolshevik history in, in, in Ukraine, in the, even in the 1920s, was always uh, great. There were big battles um, within the party about, about, you know, the questions of U- Ukrainian, the state of the Ukrainian nationalism and how to understand that. So it's always been a it's been a complicated, contentious issue for forever, but um, we need to understand. I think it's important to understand this fight as part of that as part of that history. And we can't just sort of um, you know allow the right to uh, to to have to have that ground to be seen as the singular and sole defenders of the national right to uh, self determination, especially in Eastern Europe, where this issue is so so acute, not just in Ukraine, but, you know, across the region. Right. And that, that kind of brings me to my next question, but just before I get there, I don't know, have you, um, uh, speaking of the Bolsheviks, uh, position, uh, in Ukraine historically, have you seen the, it's a movie now stand from 2019. It's a, I don't know. It's an adaptation of strike the musical about the Winnipeg 1919 general strike. No, you should check that out because there was a lot of Ukrainian immigrants that were part of the 1919 general strike. So the fact that the Bolsheviks had invaded Ukraine was a part of that uh, film. I think it's I think it's pretty well done. Um, I we uh, actually saw the musical with my uh, with my wife on our honeymoon um, up in Winnipeg because we went to Winnipeg for our honeymoon. The the musical was super impressive. The movie's not quite as impressive as the uh, as the musical, but the musical had all these kids playing. Uh, uh, like seven-year-old kids playing instruments and dancing and singing and doing all this great acting all at the same time. So um, that's great. Yeah, yeah it sounds fascinating, and that and it's important to understand the richness of that history, which is why it sounds so fascinating. Yeah. I, I started looking at this book. Um, the, the author's name is Stephen Velichenko. It's called "Painting Imperialism and Nationalism Red: The Ukrainian Marxist Critique of Russian Communist Rule in Ukraine." Uh, from 1918 to 1925, right. which goes into which goes into some of that history, um, and then Yulia Yurchenko's uh, book, um, most recent book, uh, what's it called? Um, Something of Empire, goes into the more recent um, sort of national history of the sort of struggle for national self determination in 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 Ukraine. Um, both those books are very much uh, uh, worth checking out. But I'll certainly check out the, the, the film as well. Stand, you said? Yeah, it's Stand! Exclamation point, And it's from 2019. I think that there's only, you can rent it on like Apple or YouTube. Yeah, but uh, it's, it's definitely, uh, it's trying to get a lot more uh, nuance in there, which is, I think is harder to do in the time frame set up for a film. Uh, they, they do it a little bit better in the, uh, in the musical. I, I mean, the musical was only written in like 2005. I mean, it's mostly only been performed in Canada as far as I know. Um, Look, any, anything that serves to sort of give color to that history and nuance that history, yeah. I think is valuable. So the, the Yurchenko book is called Ukraine and the Empire of Capital, from Marketization to Armed Conflict. 
um, and it's focused on the more recent history. Um, yeah, we'll anyway. include links to all the stuff and to that uh, to Putin's speech you mentioned, and to all the the books that we cover in here in the uh, in the show notes. I'm you know so I you know I personally still am strongly opposed to the NATO and U.S. arms flowing to Ukraine, and you know primarily uh, I think that just comes from uh, my perspective on the recent history of NATO, the U.S., and how they've been able to use other uh, flow of arms uh, to. Uh, to manipulate the world situation and just the, I think they play an outsized role uh, as compared to Russia, even though, you know, there's clearly multiple imperialists. I think just the role the U.S. plays is kind of like on a different level from Russia. Um, but I felt one of the most compelling arguments during the that debate, um, and you just made it again uh, briefly before, was that, you know, it plays into the, uh, uh, to the rights, the far right's hands in Ukraine, right? If you if essentially failing to support the Ukrainian resistance in a real sense, uh, essentially, you know, leaves the right wing as the only ones that are, uh, you know, that are kind of like filling that vacuum. And then someone had also made the counterpoint that, you know, that bringing in weapons, that doesn't really solve the underlying political issues. Can you just, can you just talk about how that plays into the right wing's uh, hands and also just, you know, what role like uh, weapons play in, in solving the underlying political issues? I mean, I think there's, you know, there's imperialism. There's also, you know, the Zelensky government and other stuff. Like, how how, how does that all uh, how does that all uh, work? Yeah, I mean, I'll start with the first question about um, the far right. Yeah. Um, the reality in Eastern Europe as a whole, my, you know, look, I'm no ex, I'm not a particular expert on this, sure. but I think it's pretty clear, is that because of the legacy of the Soviet Union, the legacy of Stalinism, in the, in that part of the world, not to mention the prior legacy. Of Russian uh, chauvinism and kind of Russian dominance, mm-hmm. there's an inc- a, a, you know in illusions in the West, there's incredible. We're starting for the left, and for the socialist left in particular, we're starting at an incredible deficit mm-hmm. because there's automatic, you know, suspicion if not outright hostility to what people think our project is. Right. People think you know when we talk about Lenin, we're you know we're we're praising Stalin. When we talk about socialism, we're sort of you know. Uh, we're sort of uncritical of the of of the of the of the Stalinist history in that region. So, you know, this issue of rebuilding a left in that part of the world in Eastern Europe is in, is incredibly important. And so, when people, it's incredibly important if we want to have any fu- any future prospects for a kind of internationalist um, anti-imperialist movement. When people point to the dominance of the far right politically in Ukraine, well, you know, we can have that discussion. I, I, I question whether the far right in Ukraine is any, any, any further ensconced in power than the far right in Russia. Mm. But I'm, nobody's disputing that the, the right and the far right in Ukraine has uh, political prominence, if not, uh, you know, hegemony. But the problem is that you cannot paint the entire country in the uh, with that one brush, and so as as with any other nation, there's an incredible diversity, class-wise, uh, you know, uh, in terms of uh, social experiences, right. oppression, um, and the different nations that live within the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And so, just as in other places, our role is to build a movement of the working class and the oppressed that that sees its own agency and that can stand up for itself 
in opposition to capital's power, both in Ukraine and internationally. And, you know, the, the big concern I have, look, the best, the kindest sort of reading of, the, of, of standing in opposition to arms is, well, maybe we're doing other things in solidarity. And the left is so weak anyways that it doesn't really matter. But I, I do think it matters. And I think by not sort of unequivocally stating that we are, we stand in solidarity, we stand for your right to self-defense, that we're shutting off, and that includes getting arms, because if, it's, if it doesn't include that, it's sort of a meaningless gesture. Sure. Um, that if we don't have that stance, then, we're, then that conversation gets, is closed down entirely. And, you know, if you've had any conversations with, you know, I mean, look, obviously there's all kinds of positions and individuals with different positions. Um, but I think in the main, empirically, scientifically, that, you know, the vast majority of, of, of the Ukrainian population, including the vast, vast majority of the Ukrainian population, which sees itself as part of the work or is part of its working class and, and communities of the oppressed social movements, their primary concern right now is in opposing the Russian invasion. And so if we're, if we're not standing with them, then we're shutting down that avenue of engagement. And so I worry about what that means in the future. Um, now, this again, this idea that weapons don't actually solve underlying political issues. Well, what does that mean? I mean, of course, uh, of course, underlying political issues will remain, but and that's always the case. But you know, uh, what, what's the saying that war is an extension of politics by other means? Mm-hmm. That's what we're dealing with here: the extension of politics by other means. And, you know, we have a, there's a pretty clear choice. Like we can choose to say, well, we're not going to engage in your sorted uh, military fight. But, you know, the reality is that by not engaging, or if that was the position of, of Ukrainians, well, what, what, what would be the outcome? You know, we'd be seeing uh, the kind of growth of a, of, of a Putinite dominance in the region. So, no, are all the political questions going to be resolved through weapons? Absolutely not. But, th- but that doesn't mean we, uh, we don't believe that weapons can, at this point, in this context, play an important role, because they obviously do. And this, this goes back to, I, anyways, I don't want to harp on this issue too much, but I do think that just framing the issue uh, of solidarity around the question of, 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 of opposing our arms or not does a dis- is a little bit of a disservice. As important of a question as it is, it also narrows the sort of our vision to understand the kind of broader questions, uh, broader issues uh, that are at, that are at stake. So, um, I hope that answers that question. Well, that's fair. Yeah, I mean, I I think I think one thing I'd like to get a better handle on is what what is actually going to the actual front line of the resistance, um, because it seems to me from a lot of the stuff that I've seen and heard that. A sig- it seems like a significant amount of that military aid is in some way or another getting diverted um, or has been at different points. So I just I just wonder, you know, where where is that going and what are the intentions of the U.S. and NATO in supplying that? You know, like, uh, I guess, I don't know, that, that's, a, that's a question. Well, for- I think we know, what, we know what their intentions well, are. Well, I know, but I mean, you know, like, how, okay, I guess the question, the, maybe the better question is how do we actually uh, guarantee that uh, any of that... Uh, 
hardware that's going there is actually being used as a significant part of the uh, the resistance and actually getting into the hands of people that are uh, uh, resisting Russia's invasion. Because it sounds like every everything I hear, there's still a lot of uh, missing. Uh, hardware out on the on the front lines of uh, resisting so it's just a, I don't know it's just a, a question of where is that all going and you know and I think the U.S. and NATO you know would like to su- support the far right in uh, a lot of these areas and I you know I saw that like the one of those first days they brought you know weapons out they had this big crate of weapons they just opened on a train station platform and all these people are just running up to grab stuff and it's like, wh- where is where is this where is this stuff going, right? You know, is it is it going just into the hands of these far right groups? Is it going to support other you know organized criminals and um, uh, across Europe? We know you know a lot of the you know a lot of money is uh, being laundered for different outfits, uh, different political elements in the U.S. ruling class through Europe. Um, you know, with the anyway with the collapse of FTX, which was like the second largest contributor to the Democratic Party. Um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there was the, the, uh, wire card fraud, uh, the wire card collapse, which was laundering lots of money in Europe for all sorts of, uh, entities. So I think, you know, to me, if we were going to support those kinds of arms, there'd have to be some clear, uh, uh, picture that, that those arms are actually going, you know, where they say they're going. And I just don't see any of that. And I don't trust, you know, I don't trust NATO or the U S to, to, to give me assurances on that, I guess, if you, if you see what I mean, but yeah, I mean, I'll just say a couple of things. One, no, please like, do. Look, the reality is that we, we, we're starting from where we're starting. Right. So do we have, do we have a red army in Ukraine that we would support? No, we do not. Right. So, and do we have, do we have the power to control the persons of, of, of the Pentagon? No, we do not. Mm-hmm. Do we even have a principled, uh, you know, opposition in Washington who can sort of parse these issues in a way that helps helps no nope. uh you know helps left no we do not so given this given where we're starting from let's have a brutal concrete discussion of where we're starting from and what that then means for you know what we're doing because it because otherwise questions of strategy and tactics you know are meaningless you know what we're talking about is a small group of you know a small group of a couple thousand socialists in the US trying to figure out how to grow themselves in a way that's compatible with its principles and trying to, you know, build international solidarity. The one, the thing I would say is the, the way we're going to best get answers to those questions that you're raising mm. to know really what's going on on the ground is not going to be through, uh, you know, YouTube videos and right. whatever kind of social media stuff, which is so easily subject to propaganda and, and, um, you know, mis- misuse right. is, is through, uh, you know, building human to human contact with the forces on the ground in Ukraine and getting our answers from people who are there. You know, that's the most reliable. And is that, no, but that, you know, that's really what's, uh, the kind of, you know, at some, on some level, that's what's, that's, what's needed. I just, I just today, this is anecdotal. No. Um, I saw this really disgusting tweet by Zelensky raising uh, the new, uh, you know, neo-fascist uh, Netanyahu government in in Israel. Right. And um, and I, you know, and so I reached out. To, I'm waiting on an answer, but I reached out to the comrades in some of the comrades in Ukraine, asking the question, like, what does the Palestine movement there look like? 
Mm. And have there, has there been a response to this? And I don't know what the answer is, but this is like, I think concretely, you know, this is, this is kind of, you know, trying to, trying to raise these questions and build these connections and, uh, you know, connect these struggles um, is, is kind of of crucial importance um, with a, with very modest, with being very modest about and concrete by necessity about who we are, where we are, and what their actual, what the actual questions are in front of us. Um, not, not, not sort of abstractions. And I absolutely agree with you that, you know, building international questions is like, uh, at the forefront of, uh, you know, building the kind of world that we want to see, you know, and I really, you know, I really appreciate you speaking with me, Aaron. And, you know, this is an extremely important issue and we have to keep, you know, having these discussions and hashing this out before you go. Is there anything else you want to share as far as solidarity events, organizations, or other books, uh, that folks should check out? So I want to encourage people to check out tempestmag.org, and uh, which is our which is our website, and um, the Ukraine Solidarity Network US will be hosting events on the anniversary of the invasion uh, as part of an international an international series of events on February twenty fourth and twenty fifth. Um, so keep your eye out for 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 that. And uh, thank you, Nick. I appreciate the opportunity to to, to talk, um, and I look forward to. Uh, Look forward to hearing more of, the, of your podcast. Yeah, I appreciate it. Take care. Take care. And that's our interview. At the end, I misspoke slightly. I said it's important to build international questions. I meant to say it's important to build international connections. And as always, check the show notes for additional links to content covered in today's interview. Thanks again for listening. Solidarity. This has been a Socialist News and Views special interview.